I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, roll down the windows, crank it up, and let everyone know how weird you are. Hi, welcome to episode 24 of Slaughter. I'm Emma. And I'm Lucy. And we're both here to podcast. Yeah, we're here to podcast. We I think Lucy's here. <laughs> I'm a little bit poorly, but I've just, I'm thinking, someone's not buying the Smart Price Lou Roll. <laughs> well done. This well, is Kosher the Meister. It's Tesco's own. Do but... they owe me money now? <laughs> um, so, toilet paper aside, Lucy is half human, half blanket today. Yeah. But we're going to do a joint one. We've joined forces to talk about Jimmy Savile. James Wilson Savile. <laughs> so we're going to start by looking at his early life. And he was born in 1926. He was a Halloween baby. 31st of October, born at Leeds. Youngest of seven children. Described himself as an old child. Ah, uh, so he was just boring then. Basically. I think the same has been said about Carl Pilkington. Is that his excuse for having no friends? Like, well, I was just an old man. I was an old soul. He spent a lot of time in adult company as a child, apparently. Although, his next oldest sibling was only five years old. I say seven siblings. How are you in adult company all the time? So his parents were called Agnes and Vince Savile. And he was not a planned baby. So basically, they'd had their family. They'd called it a day. Then Agnes got pregnant and they thought, well, we're married, so we'll have one more. Um, He describes his childhood as a fight for attention. He sort of had to try and put himself out there because he had so many people to compete with. His father was a bookmaker in the betting shop. Now, betting was illegal at the time, so he would work in the back room and he'd have to hand write out the bets. They'd have a lookout to make sure that kind of the feds weren't coming. His mother worked as the a... The supp- feds. The feds. Is that, is that British? No. The that- federales. <laughs> His mother worked as a supply teacher and they spent a lot of the money on the house so they didn't have a lot of money to kind of spend on themselves but they sort of prioritised having more rooms in the house because mm. sometimes you get it where you've got a really big family and there's like five kids sharing a room or I think they just didn't want to be in that situation. Savile was pretty small as a child and he was very sickly and a lot of the doctors said that he just wasn't going to live. Um, a little runty one. He was, yeah, it's described as the runt quite a lot. He had a mystery illness and they just couldn't work out what was wrong with him. He's just a wiener. <laughs> yeah, I think so. He just doesn't want to get out of bed. 
And they basically said, he's going to die. So he was, this was age, like, I think it was about four. There's a lot of different accounts. And actually, a lot of this comes from Savile and his grandmother were interviewed about this. And they gave different accounts as well because Savile remembered it differently to his grandmother. But she said that... You don't remember it when you're four either. I know. How is he going to know? His grandmother said that basically the doctor said he's on the way out. He's really ill. He's about to die. And uh, the family were all kind of just waiting for him to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Oh, come on. And you just there? get it over with. <laughs> he made a miraculous recovery. So he went to sleep. They were like, right, it's time. This is the end. Had a lovely Started eight hours. Started zipping up the body bag. <laughs> yeah. Had a full eight hours. Woke up. Right as rain. So, from that point on... Uh, I mean, which doctor was it that didn't first recommend just let him sleep for a bit? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just tired. He's <laughs> overtired. That's what he was. Maybe he was hungry too. He's hungry and tired. Like, we can't possibly figure it out. I mean, when you're tired and hungry, that is the danger zone. That's when Luke starts going. Quick feeder. His mother became more religiously devout after this kind of miracle recovery. And he was seen as a bit of a miracle child. So, I mean, if anyone's going to get a God complex from anything, it's your whole childhood, people saying you're a miracle baby and we're so pleased you're there. That reminds me of um, a song that Tim Minchin does. I love Tim Minchin. He's talking about how and when people believe really devoutly in God and they talk about miracles, he finds it amusing because they're all so trivial. And he does a song that's like, thank you, God, for curing the cataracts of Sam's mum. <laughs> and I love that one. He's like, all of the things, all of the billions of people in the world, what he really needed to do was get rid of the cataracts <laughs> in this 40-year-old Australian woman. Many evenings, with a little money, the whole family would spend their evening huddled around the fire because obviously you'd tend not to have heating in the whole house. You'd just use the fire to heat the house. So everyone would just congregate in the lounge by the fire. Um, Obviously you didn't have mobile phones either. So actually I guess teenagers would spend time with their family, God forbid. Whereas nowadays they're just quick (laughs) off to their room after dinner. You don't see them till the next day. Who are you talking as if you've got teenage children? Yeah, but every- like, well, and that's teenagers today, they're just straight off to the bedrooms, they aren't are they? they? Like, are you I've- just describing yourself? I asked one of my students the other day, I said, how long a day do you genuinely spend with your parents? They were like, 10 minutes. So you're getting raised by the Xbox now. So anglers would play the piano and they would all kind of sit around and sing to the piano. So that's how they spent a lot of their evenings. Um, Savile's father used to get out of bed about 11am every morning because because of the horse racing at 12. Oh, so I'd best get up nice and early for the racing. (laughs) He's missed half the day. Yeah, so the children would have to just tiptoe around before they went to school so as not to wake their father up. But to be imagine being the wife, watching him sleep in, it's like, I think it's bad enough for people who are with a teacher and then during the holidays when you have to get up for work and the teacher's still in bed rolling around going, oh, I could just stay in bed all day if I want. But she had that every day. Vince also introduced his children to cigars. Savile started smoking at about age seven. Yeah, that was his, like, trademark, yeah. wasn't it? He smoked the big cigars all his life. Yeah, so he started very, very young. And he didn't speak about his father much in interviews or his biography. He just didn't want to talk about it. It gave the impression that they didn't have Maybe a close relationship. Maybe it's boring if he did. Like, well, he was sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> so in Savile's biography, Life and Lies of Jimmy Savile, it talks about how it might suggest the fact that he's so unwilling to talk about his father that maybe there was some abuse happening there. But 
no one ever spoke about it. He was a very solitary child. Uh, he, he had a large family, but he used to spend a lot of time on his own. So he used to go alone to the cinema. He used to hang around outside his school. Well, I was reading um, about child, obviously reading about child abuse for the for this case. And one, in part of the government review, it was talking about how before the 1980s, child abuse generally wasn't reported yeah like people didn't actually they were saying people in like nice sections of society didn't think child abuse happened they would think that it may be low-income families but it wasn't talked about so it's really really, it might have been that he was abused because i think it was obviously it happens it happens you know as long as there have been children and people that are nasty yeah but um yeah i just found that really bizarre and they were saying that it wasn't until Esther Ranson started doing this show called Child Watch, where she talked about abuse, that people even thought about having safety guidelines like that we today would think are normal, like not letting someone be alone in a room with a child. Yeah. Like simple things like that. They were like, we just didn't think that children would be getting abused. Like, yeah. They didn't think that nice, respectable people would do it. And then it wouldn't surprise me that if he had been abused, he wouldn't have said anything. You don't mention it. But you think that maybe with everything that's come out about Jimmy Suffolk, that maybe one of his siblings would have spoken out about it at some point. As like in, a way of... As a kind of a justification in some way. That's true. Like, it's weird that no one's ever said that is a possibility. The fact that they let him sleep in till 11 o'clock every day and tiptoed around him suggests that you didn't want to wake that fucker up. Yeah. Like, that's a warning sign for me that he was at least a bit of a knobhead. Yeah. If you would let him sleep in every single day, that means you are scared to have him awake. And also this kind of, like, I'm not going to speak about my father and this unwillingness to even talk about him is a, a little bit alarming, I'd say. I mean, he was a 1920s dad. He was running an illegal betting shop. Yeah. Like, who else? Who knows what else he was up to? True. Jaywalking and scrumping, no doubt. <laughs> so, uh, Savile used to hang around on his own quite a lot, go to St. Mordor's own, and he would also go to St. John's home for the aged, which was opposite his house. And I think because his dad used to um, give some money to the care home, they kind of just felt obligated to just have, let Savile just sort of wander around whenever he wanted. So it was kind right. of one of his regular hangouts. But he did, he kind of gained a little bit of an obsession with death at this point because he said they, they're always dying I, I mean I guess they do you go to a care home people die a lot don't they but he also quite young he used to sneak them in beer which I thought was quite nice <laughs> that is sweet my mum's done that for a few <laughs> yeah. of her patients I'll let them have a beer see what's the point what are, you, what are you saving them from at this stage <laughs> Luke's granddad's care home had a bar and it used to encourage people having uh, alcohol because it increases your appetite it's so, a mush yeah. <laughs> drink up it's mush time yeah. that's really weird because obviously I'm not like hanging out in hospitals and things was kind of yeah. what he did. Like he would never, he didn't really put down roots. He never stayed more than a couple of nights in yeah. the same place. And a lot of the times he'd be hanging out at hospitals, but obviously mm. that's how come from. Yeah. Okay. So Savile uh, described himself and his siblings as survivors. Again, a very strange term to use. He said they were often left to fend for themselves. Uh, in the 1940s, he obviously left school and he began playing records in dance halls and he claims to be the first DJ. So he had decks and he would play records. I mean, there's always something a bit creepy about a DJ, I think. 
Yeah. Like, they're always a little bit off, aren't they? Taking requests, playing songs like Sex on the Beach, and then turning it down so everyone's got to shout out the word sex. It's very, very weird They're to be always, a DJ. Yeah. Our, our DJ at school discos was also the local police officer, so uh, he, would turn, all right then. he would turn down the word sex because we weren't allowed to say it. So I don't know what school discos you were like, he wants us to shout it. That was obviously a big thing at school discos. That song was huge, wasn't it? Sex on the Beach. Yeah. I want to have... Mm, on the no, we don't just have to stand still. Maybe that's... Because it was the same school. Maybe that's why he was turning it down. I just assumed he was trying to get us to shout out the word set. I was thinking of primary school. <laughs> I went to secondary school discos. <laughs> so alongside this, he began to compete in sporting... Wants to shout. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> He was trying to get kids to shout out the word sex. That's not okay. I'm doing my best to censor it, but I can't hold back the wall of sex. <laughs> they were just screaming it in replacement like come on it's the key word to that song we uh, just don't play the song yeah <laughs> no one's requesting it <laughs> okay so alongside this he competed in a lot of sporting events so he became a semi-professional sportsman and he was part of athletics competitions cycling and he did a lot of wrestling now his wrestling career was a bit of a weird one he lost his first 35 fights Oh. So he was <clears throat> terrible. I mean, he was this little weedy he, guy. He just loved the vests. That's something that <laughs> stuck with him. That's all he was in it for was the leisure wear. He needed an excuse to always have his nips out. I mean, if you've lost 25 fights, call it a day. Why keep going? Oh, just 10 more. You've got to get better. It's ludicrous. So he moved to Salford, which is near Manchester, and he began taking on the management of the of these different clubs. So he took on the Plaza Ballroom in Manchester, um, and then he moved across and took on ballrooms in Leeds and Essex. He did lots of kind of popular evenings, and I guess it kind of goes with the whole DJ thing that you're setting up evening events, but he just took on the everyday running of them as well. did a lot of teenage lights. Yes. Question marks there. So there's a couple of really famous documentaries about Jimmy Savile that Louis Theroux did. His first one, yeah. when Louis met Jimmy, he was saying that he was found him really difficult. He's like, he was the most belligerent person to talk to, is the impression that I got. Like, you couldn't have a straight conversation with him. Every time you were trying to have a no- ask him a normal question, he was right on the defensive with a stupid comment or yeah. trying to deflect it. But he's saying that and there's just one candid moment well, Louis describes what he feels is his only candid time when he was talking about working in the dance halls and he was saying about how um, he was running them and he had a no-tolerance policy and that if anything kicked off, he'd sort it out and the guy asks him, like, what do you mean? He's like, well, tie them up, put them in the boiler room, leave them there until they were begging to get out and the police would come round and they'd be like, you're being so heavy-handed, Jim, you're being so heavy-handed. And he would say, and all I'd say is, well, your daughter comes here. She's 15, not supposed to be here. Do you want me to look after her or not? And no, then, definitely not. <laughs> anyone but you. But he would say that's how he'd get away with things because he had ran a lot of teenage nights and he felt that he was like the saviour of these girls, that like he was looking out for all of them. And he, yeah, okay. uh, from that, that's when he started to feel like he was untouchable, like he could do what he wanted because he was in this position of authority so in the late 1950s Savile became a dj on radio luxembourg and he did a teen and 20 disc club basically they had they played teenage songs but also kids could write in and they'd get an engraved disc or something i think that's why it's called a disc club but i mean it sounded crap to be honest it engraved with their name like 
I don't know. I mean, it, it sounded like a crock of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the blankety blank checkbook and pen. Yeah. Like, no one wants it, but... <laughs> let's do this show after it. Like, it sounds rubbish. But They've got a name for a show... And then, then they thought of the concept afterwards. Yeah. Like, I want to call it the disc club. Like, what's going to be the club? <laughs> like, maybe we wear discs? <laughs> no, something else. But this show is what later became Top of the Pops. So actually, from small beginnings, uh, it is actually transformed into something that is... He appeared on and presented a lot of different Radio 1 shows as well. And then he started to get behind the camera in the TV show, Top of the Pops. So that was quite a big... I mean, people... Everyone watched Top of the Pops. Oh, yeah, it was massive. It ran for decades. Decades. And it it basically would be the hits of the time. And, you you know, you even had, like, Kurt Cobain on Top of the Pops. And There was um, that that really weird one where Kurt Cobain went on and he sang and he said he was trying to sing as if he was Morrissey. Yeah. And, like, he just ruins the song because he's singing it like... <laughs> but later you said, yeah, I was doing an impression of Morrissey. It was the worst Morrissey impression I've ever heard. <laughs> but it was the only time... It was the only chance to watch any music videos or see them because hardly yeah. anyone had Sky or cable or anything. So if that was the only time you could, apart from the radio, that you could hear the songs that were popular or watch the music videos. It was massive. Yeah, you could just couldn't get on-demand music. if you wanted And that's on- in the 90s, I'm talking. So in the yeah. 60s, it was even bigger. Like, that's how you knew what you were If you wanted on-demand music, you either had to buy it on tape or you had to get a blank tape, wait by the radio for when they started announcing the song that you wanted, plus play and record at the same time. You'd always get a bit of talkie at the beginning. You'd always get a bit of talkie at the end, but you could make yourself like a mixtape of the songs that you liked. It was such high effort. But it made me appreciate the songs that I did capture on tape because I was like, now I can play them whenever I want. No YouTube back then. Uh, around this time, Savile also had his legs insured for £2 million. No, he didn't. He did. How strange. Why? Well, I think because he was an athlete. We'll but... let you present it in a wheelchair. Like, that's going to be okay. They had a lot of podiums. That's true. I suppose you couldn't wheel him up. Like, they weren't really dis- disability accessible back then. It was all podiums. <laughs> Doesn't it make you think that he was scared that someone was going to come after him and break his legs, though? Like an Ooh, angry I pair. Think of that. Or, yeah. Yeah. Well, insure your legs. Maybe it's like everyone's doing it. It's one of those things that see a lot of people insure their legs. Did JLo insure her behind? I mean, what damage is going to happen to your butt? And yeah. not the rest of you. It sat down too hard. Yeah, whose fault is it going to be? To insure it, like... Okay, so... Deflated. Savile's career continued with the show Clunk Click Every Trip. Oh, yeah, it, was the, it became the advert for seatbelts. Yeah, so it promoted the use of seatbelts, which is obviously insanely cool. Everyone's going to be want to watch that show. Here's a question. This separate, like, this is a good one to find out about people, like, when you really know a person. What do you call the little receptacle that you put the seatbelt in buckle that you put it into you call that part oh. the buckle put the buckle in the because I call it a plucker no <laughs> <laughs> definitely not like because you're always losing you're like where's the plucker but, like, what the do you plucker put... you didn't know that about me we weren't real friends strap yourself in put your seatbelt in the there is no word like when you can't find it what do you call it oh I can't find the seatbelt thing it doesn't need a word. I'm not. It's not something I'm talking about on plucker. a day-to-day time. It's not a plucker because it goes pluck. Uh, I'm not down for that. Okay, plucker. Clunker is what it could be called. Click clack. 
Clunk, click. <laughs> You're literally reading the words <laughs> in front of you. Click, <laughs> clack. So, clip, clop. Came the seatbelt. So, that led to a Saturday night show also called Clunk, Click, which later replaced... I mean, how can you do a whole TV show about seatbelts? You can't. What's the concept? Of, I don't, that is one thing I didn't find out, what the concept of the whole TV show was. Clunk, click. Because I well, know the clunk, click every trip, put your seatbelt on. We're now going to do a TV show... Where, yeah, we're just getting rid where of we every watch trip. different people put their seatbelts on. Will they find the plucker? Find out after the break. <laughs> I think they did find the plucker. Against their will. Later on, he did Jim will fix it, and that ran from 1975 to 1994. So this is where he kind of made his name. I mean, he had he had done Top of the Pops as well, and obviously those two over like ran together at the same time, but. Obviously, his name was in Jim will fix it. So I'm going to talk about the premise of the show a little bit. Basically, it was to make the dreams and wishes of children and adults, but generally it featured children, come true every week. So as long as their dream was, I want to meet a celebrity or do something that's easy to organise, it was like, fine, come on and meet your dream. Wasn't necessarily kids who had, you know, who were terminally ill or anything like that. It was just normal kids who had a dream of something usually it was i want to go on a roller coaster that was pretty much from my memory of it in the 90s i was like felt like i was always watching children just go on roller coasters i I just remember i want to turn on the christmas lights yep done easy i want to eat a pizza on a roller coaster okay let's this will be amusing why do all these children want to eat things on roller coasters you can organize (laughs) that yourself that's okay to do yeah so Savile generally wasn't involved in the actual dream but he just presented it at the end and he interviewed the children after and a lot of the children wrote to the show obviously a little bit confused by the name i don't know what's confusing about the name jim will fix it but they would write to dear jimmel <laughs> or dear mr fix it jimmel no i'm waiting for someone to write to miss s laughter oh one day so famous fixits involved uh, children requesting to have a meal in an unusual place yes they did it on Isn't a roller coaster blackpool pleasure yes. beach you know that's one of those things i was as i was saying it i was like oh did i actually watch that yes they fucking did eat on roller coasters why yeah but they said i want a meal in an unusual place wouldn't you be like oh brilliant underwater restaurant top of a skyscraper no on a roller coaster yeah let's put you in a position where you have no chance of enjoying this meal let's do something cheap and i think cheerful. they were trying to get a free holiday that's what they're trying to do. like take me on safari no <laughs> we're just gonna throw the food at you yeah the unusual places on the end of my dick is what he was thinking as he was reading the letters uh, a girl asked if she could drop a seemingly expensive vase on the Antiques Roadshow and sh- that happened as well so basically that's creative she, so she did I want to ruin a TV show yeah. <laughs> so she went on Antiques Roadshow and smashed it on the floor and it did get shown on the actual show um, but then they later in the show explained that it was for Jim will fix it I feel like we should have mentioned that he was a giant pedo at the start of the podcast <laughs> Probably. Because we keep referencing, oh, and then later, we haven't said that he's a massive nonce. Yeah, basically, this was I've all... I've said nonce again. I've committed to this word. I don't know what to do about it. But this was all a cover, though, wasn't it? So the whole Jim will fix it. It's been suggested that throughout this time, he'd been using the show or had the opportunity through the show to access meeting with a lot of children quite a lot of opportunities to be alone with children during this time in 1990 so during this time 
uh, that Jim will fix it was on the TV, Savile was actually knighted as well. So he became Sir Jimmy Savile. So he was knighted. I mean, part of the review that happened after his death, there was a massive one by uh, Dame Janet Smith. And basically her purpose was to find out, did people know that abuse was happening while he was working there? And that's what she was trying to discover. And it turns out with the knighting, I mean, he had friends in high places. In particular, one of his friends was Margaret Thatcher, who could obviously recommend people for knighthood. So she originally requested that he get knighted in 1983. And the people, the board in charge of it said that they didn't think he was a good person to be knighted because he'd written this autobiography as it happens in 1974 where he'd said that he had sex with hundreds of girls and that he called them all dolly birds and he said you didn't ask how old they were you just they flocked to you and they came and he's basically saying how promiscuous he was and so they said in 1983 so nearly 10 years after that that they didn't want the lurid details of his story to be brought back to light as yeah. in people have just started to forget that he's a bit of a sexual creep and we don't want that to come back out. She tried again in 1984, the following year, and said, look, come on, he does all this charity work, he's amazing, let's get him knighted. That time the board said they refused him and they said that they felt that he might be tempted to exploit his title. So but people had inklings that things were... I mean, they sort of new, I guess. Well, an independent board of people, so not working at the BBC or work, but the people who decide knighthood said that they felt that he was the sort of person that would use his knighthood to exploit for whatever reason yeah but exploit your title that means you're there's some abuse of power and they suspected that of him this very new rumors yeah she tried again in 1980 bloody desperate to get him and knighted, I say, I'd be she? like all right what's the deal with you and Savile yeah so 1988 she tried again and this time the board said in the 80s the big crisis that was happening at the time was AIDS. Yeah. And it was coming out um, and they were saying that they felt that knighting someone who was so sexually promiscuous was unhelpful to the AIDS crisis and looked as if they weren't taking it seriously and trying to do things. So it wasn't until 1990 that he was actually knighted. But the same year, he also received a papal knighthood. So the Pope gave him this honour as well I mean that's the seal of a pedo approval isn't isn't it it? I was gonna say if the Pope's on board with it he's probably got like the club badge he's in there I mean the thing with getting knighted is it's it's quite a big honour isn't it and it's not like you can be an absolute prick but you do a few good things and then you get a knighthood the the idea is that you're genuinely a good person through and through yeah and he's been given an OBE already which is like for a recognition of his um service to entertainment but for a knighthood to become a knight of the realm endorsed by the royal family i mean he was friends with the royal family too so it probably wasn't that difficult to persuade them but that's putting you on a pedestal as in our country saying you represent us beyond all other people and represent what we're about and basically for many years the board was saying Jimmy Savile does not represent what we're about we're not happy with having this guy be knighted but I mean if Margaret Thatcher pushed for it enough the Iron Lady but it is weird because I'm going to talk about the Louis Theroux documentary in a minute but the idea that he gives in that is that he's a very lonely person without many friends and also he's bloody annoying like why 
how is the queen putting up with Savile coming around going, now then, now then, let's talk about me. Let's all make some stupid jokes all the time. Who's putting up with that? That is one thing I really didn't understand because all the way through the abuse, one of the big reasons why people felt they couldn't come forward and report at the time is that he had friends in high places and people felt like he could damage their career, damage their lives because he had so much influence. And you can see it. You see photographs of him hobnobbing with all these people. But he was disgusting. He always... Like, I mean, you can see him in a suit, but usually he stood next to Prince Charles, still in his tracksuit, yeah. smoking his cigars. He has the weird L- Lego woman haircut, fringe yeah. and bob. Like and scraggly old shaggy he hair. He looked filthy, though. He looked dirty. Yeah, he, I mean, he looked a bit like a pedo, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people did comment um, in the... And the victim statements commented that he would smell really badly of cigars and body odor. Yeah. When you see his house in the documentary, it's not kept well. Like no. he was a grubby man. He was. I mean, like he. How did they put up with him? Like he looks like the sort of person where if he was sat on a bus, you'd be like, I have to sit next to them because I don't want to look mean. But I'm literally gonna have one quarter of my butt cheek. <laughs> on the seat yeah his look was not a a look of high status was it i mean he looked poor in the way that he dressed but then he used to have these flash cars the gold watches that were very expensive but if he used to wear shell suits which i mean kind of thing of the past now aren't they but if i don't know if america ever got shell suits or or australia or anywhere else in the uk but basically they were like track suits but almost like papery fabric weren't they made of of only the most flammable materials yes because um, so there's nothing better than rustling when you walk yeah really rust- I had a shell suit for a while basically ski gear almost yeah, yeah me and my brother had matching shell suits uh, yeah <laughs> you should bust those out apparently I though put the photo on Patreon do you know our mutual friend that we used to go and terrorise I think we mentioned it before on the podcast oh yeah um, that lived around the corner from me he when he did some volunteer work in Africa and apparently that's where all the shell suits went they're all in Africa so he said that they were super cheap, so he just bought a load for himself while he was out there. He was wearing shell suits the whole time. It's like, that's weird. They're not cute. No. Or they have to be lurid colours as well. Like, opposites yeah. on the Bright colour purple. wheel. Only. Bright purple with white or like yellow and pink. Bile green. Yeah. With a flash of orange. So he was creepy. He's that's creepy. The the story. He, he was creepy. He looked creepy. Um, and he, but that's what I mean. It's almost... Uh, completely I mean we're going to a little bit about more about why people didn't come up with things but it is that's the bit that's inexplicable to me it's how he's friends with these people like not just I mean he doesn't I think friends is a loose term he had he did have influence with people in power he didn't have close personal relationships with really anyone them. He's going around acting creepy, being creepy, looking creepy, and no one's saying this guy's a bit creepy. Like everyone's just like, yeah, it's Jimmy Savile. Yeah, that's what he's household like. name. <laughs> um, so Louis Three filmed a very in-depth documentary that you is very. I think it's hard to find now. It actually, it's hard to find now. I think the BBC banned it. I found it on YouTube, sped up and in a small corner of the screen, and. Louis III sounded like a chipmunk, but I still persevered through it. But I have seen it properly previously. You can um, turn the speed slower on YouTube. Yeah, well, I figured that was the idea, but I was just kind of watching it while I was doing it. Like, research. I'm going to watch it in half the time. Yeah, basically. This is amazing. I think this is for research, so this is dead easy. But I it- did do that last night. I had to be somewhere, but there was a new episode of Catfish, which was super interesting. Right, I'm going to just fast forward Catfish. most of this and get the gist. Yeah. 
beginning and end. So he had a miserable flat in this documentary. He had no cooker. He basically said he rarely receives visitors. Um, he smoked cigars the whole time. He was running on a treadmill smoking a cigar. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that was just for the cameras. Um, he was totally trying to control the interview throughout, like you said. Like, he was irritatingly refusing to answer questions and trying to make himself... even normal things, though, just how are you today, would be met with, oh, well, you should have asked me last week yeah. because that's when I was... Like, there's nothing you could say to him that wouldn't get a stupid answer. But he was also really keen to come across in a certain way to try and... Like, he was like, why don't you ask me to give some of my wisdom on camera? Won't that make a more interesting documentary? And getting really frustrated with Louis Theroux, who famously is an irritating interviewer like he's not he's not going to do it your way if you've ever seen anything that he's done he's going to do it his way and he's going to make you look a dick i love louis through his documentaries um i've probably seen all of them like five times each but weird weekends my favorite his it's some people believe that he puts on an act i honestly believe that his interview style is just he's the most awkward person in history like these you get these awkward situations because his no he's been doing this for years and yet still he will ask a question and be like and then just stare. But he also he'll call the, you out on it like he'll make so, you look at what yeah, wait he'd be like yeah well, but oh, why, yeah, he's, why he, are you doing that though? he will ask things he'll be blunt but he won't so, play along he's so tall and gangly like <laughs> a he just still looks like an awkward teenage boy just hovering in the corner it just adds the whole awkwardness to everything but he's like one of those kids at school do you know when you make a joke and it doesn't quite land and it's a little bit silly and they'll be like they question you about it and it just makes you look even more of an idiot afterwards louis theroux is one of them like but why did you say that though yeah. and you're like oh can we just let this one slide come on louis <laughs> don't draw attention to just let silliness. this one go some of the things that uh, Savile kept saying were on his uh, on this documentary were see you in court. Yeah, he was extremely litigious about the fact that he was going to sue Louis if he didn't like the documentary because he'd done that previously to a lot of people. And he kept saying when he asked him a question, next, next question. They were having a conversation. Really annoying. That is one of that is another reason why Jimmy Savile one of the reasons why he was able to get away with things is what he was extremely litigious and he would sue people and he had so much money and so much influence on his side there were i think five cases where allegations were brought against him before the main scandal broke and people knew about him five allegations in his life and he took them to court and all were settled out of court and he talks about this in a police interview he talks about it in another TV interview and he basically says what are they going to do like you got you come across Jimmy Savile you can't fight me like yeah. of course they're going to settle out of court and he's well you was, could fight him because he'd probably win because he's bloody shit at wrestling <laughs> <laughs> well yeah but he had this really inflated sense of like he honestly thought he was one of the most powerful people in the country and it seems like he actually might have been and it all comes from him being the miracle child from when he was a four-year-old yeah he described it as his policy so he had a police interview in 2009 with surrey police and he basically says i take absolutely everything seriously and he says even the police interview that he was having he says to the there was three police officers present and he said you should know i've alerted my legal team and you ladies will finish up at the old bailey and then just goes, as witnesses, but vaguely yeah. threatening all the time. And like with Louis, it was that vaguely threatening, like he'd written his address. 
and yeah. on a piece of paper for Louis and left it out for him to find. And he's like, how did you get my address? He's like, well, I can get things. And it's, he wasn't overtly threatening people, yeah. but he was, he would show that he could sort of get you. Yeah. So within this documentary, he also revealed that he had special large cigars made for um, camera opportunities. So he was playing on, and he used to wear track suits if he knew he had a media appearance, whereas he didn't normally wear them around his house. So he definitely no, was... he just wore little shorts. Yeah. And with his moves out, he was barely dressed ever. Or a dressing gown. <laughs> so he also took Louis to the flat that he had used to share with his mother, and he lived with his mother until she died. So a lot of his life. And it's basically... It was a shrine to his mother, who he called the Duchess, which I think is weird. And he said he never brought girls home there. Uh, he suggested he'd never had a relationship, actually, on or off camera. Um, I mean, it almost sounds that he was virginous, but obviously we know that not to be true. No, that, that was one of my... One of the things about him, so he has all this money, he's super rich, but like we said, he lives in almost squalor. Yeah. Like, he's covered in jewellery, like, that's his other thing, like, Mr. T levels of jewellery. Yeah. But he was tight as fuck. So he looks out, when he's talking about how would you bring girls back, he's like, right, you see over there, that caravan park? Yeah. <laughs> got me a caravan there, that's the love nest. And like, how icky, like, he's got all this money, I would not even, I don't even want to sleep in a caravan, never mind fucking a caravan. No way. No. But all his life, like, from throughout the 60s, ever, he would always have a camper van or a caravan where he would take people. And I think, you could have anything. But yeah, he had, like, a ridiculously flash car. Yeah. Like, and, like, gold But then he would watches. take people back to his caravan. Like, that's not so sexy. weird. But he said he wouldn't bring girls back to the house because of respect for his mother. And he also kept all her clothes and he had them cleaned once a year um, in a cupboard. And... He said that he had a friendly relationship with her, which was a weird way of saying it, but he used to come home, call her darling, and that they were friendly even when Louis was kind of saying, oh, well, you must really love her. He was like, no, 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 it was friendly. And it was very, like, weird, like, just say you loved your mum. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, you clearly did. I, I think I, there was one interview where he says, she's the only woman that I've ever loved. Yeah. Like, it was a seriously... Because, like I said, personal relationships. He had sex with a lot of women... But he never had a relationship with someone. Yeah, and I think he was quite derogatory about women. Oh no, he was a grab now, ask questions yeah. later. So, throughout his career, he raised approximately £40 million pounds for charity. Um, he volunteered at Stoke Mandeville Hospital as a porter for years. Um, and he also volunteered to oversee the management at Broadmoor for quite a while and he had his own room there as well so he set up two of his own charities as well as raising money for several jewish charities it was known for a lot of charity work and volunteer work as well now obviously after he died um the charities were shut down and the money was distributed to other charities uh 2005 he ran the london marathon age 79 um he raised more money then uh, at the end of the work, at the end of his life, he also continued to work. So he presented the last ever Top of the Pops in 2006. He presented Jim will fix it strikes again in 2007, and then in 2011 he died aged 84, and he was found dead at his home two days before his 85th birthday. Uh, his funeral was at Leeds Cathedral, and he was buried at Woodlands Cemetery in Scarborough. 
It was no, like a three-day thing. He had he had a casket that yeah. he would go and visit. It was a massive event. Yeah, I mean, he was a public figure. His possessions were auctioned off for charity. His body was buried holding a green commando beret, and it was buried at a 45-degree angle so he could see the sea. Um, so that's something weird that he'd requested. That was one of his final requests. His coffin was gold lacquered as well. Yeah, like he didn't. He like I say he hardly spent much of his money. But when he died, he was like, right, coffin in gold. <laughs> he wanted all to be have his jewelry in there with him. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. He wanted concrete pouring on top so people couldn't steal his jewelry. So I looked at some newspapers that had reported just after he died, just out of interest to see kind of the kind of things that they were saying about him. And uh, one of the most famous names of on British TV and radio, someone said, a wonderful man, sadly missed, lots of phrases. Some people said he was a lonely character. And Ricky Gervais actually uh, quoted, he said, a proper British eccentric, um, rest in peace, which he probably regrets now. Well, three weeks later, the headstone that they'd put up was smashed and removed because almost as soon as the funeral and the tributes were over, the scandal broke and people were coming forward and all of the things that had been rumours and whispers suddenly became headline news. Basically, hundreds and hundreds of counts of abuse were reported from the 60s right through to his later life. And it just sparked a national outrage that how has this happened there are more and more stories and so in particular events taking place at the BBC at schools at hospitals and Operation U-Tree was set up to investigate this which then brought to light even more people involved and it has basically become the biggest criminal investigation of recent times so aside from this, each establishment had to set up its own independent investigations to see were these reports true, how were they handled, did people know what he was doing at the time. So one of the places where most of his abuse took place was linked to the BBC. 
And as I mentioned, Janet Smith did a review into it. Throughout this report, so they basically just collected all the witness accounts. They interviewed hundreds of people and you can read every witness statement. I'm by no means going to go through and tell you every single you wouldn't want case to. of abuse. It went on for decades. In the ones, some of them were said to be dismissed. Some of them were dismissed by the review for because they didn't really match up with his modus operandi or with what other people said at the time. But in total, the accepted counts, there were 57 females and 15 males abused at the BBC during the years he was there. 34 of those victims were underage and most of them happened either while on top of the pops or on Jim will fix it. So when he had mostly child, young audiences around. That's awful. So one significant group was something that he called the London Team. So this was a group of about six to eight girls of any one time. Some had like long-standing members. Some people would come and go. But it's basically, it's like harem. They were all teenagers and they were invited by Jimmy to hang out with him when he presented on Top of the Pops. So he wouldn't, he was a regular presenter, but the way they did it, they switched people out. So he wasn't, it wasn't every single week. He'd be like, oh, it's my episode get the team to come down they'd be in the dressing room before i mean i something about being a teenager that you would think that is proper cool wouldn't you yeah you'd you'd be like this is the shit i'm hanging out with a celebrity i'm on tv and not just him because obviously at top of the pops it's a studio show where like i said that was the chance for bands to come on they were mingling with the most famous bands of the time and this was especially in the early days the 60s was, this was when pop music and rock music was really taking off, when the charts first started. Yeah. This was a totally new experience and totally wild for them. So there were two women in particular whose, throughout the report, their names are Angie and Val, which aren't the real names. I'm also suspicious that these two women might be the two that Louis Theroux did a second documentary about Jimmy Savile after his death called yeah. Savile where he basically looks back and says, how did I not notice? And goes through it. And in that documentary, he's approached, he's given a letter by two women who talk about being girlfriends of Jimmy Savile and the time they spent together. I might think that these might might be be the same too, because their stories are very similar. But these two women were longstanding members of the London team. And they said they were part of this group and that they would be in his dressing room and things and then Angie describes how every time after the show Savile would choose a girl who was to go back to the dressing room to have sex with either in the dressing room or the hotel or his camper van or his flat in London and she says that she didn't like doing it but she knowingly went and did it because it was an honour to be chosen by him she felt like it made her feel special that this celebrity wanted her and she was part of the scene. She didn't want to yeah. say no and then lose access to all of this celebrity music world. Because I guess that's the question that comes up is, if you're if he's doing this, why are you still going there? Yeah. But I guess you're so young and vulnerable. And kids, I mean, they faced with stuff that's unpleasant. Kids don't always turn... Kids don't have the maturity to go, well, I'm going to turn my back on that. It's like if you have um, someone abusing you through text a lot of kids don't block the number like they just let it happen angie who describes that was i think she was 17 18 when it first started val the other girl 
she was she knew him when she was first 15 and then when she was 16 she describes in like harrowing detail the story of her first sexual encounter with him where he pinned her down and didn't there's no undressing he literally just whacked his member out and pushed her clothing to the side and had sex with her and then just said leave now and he was done and it's horrible but again like and she was overage but her first sexual encounter she just said she didn't know what to do she was just frozen and felt awful but she was friends with the other girls that was her friendship group didn't want to lose it so they didn't want to say anything because they knew that they'd be out the group basically yeah and i guess in your mind you can kind of downplay it but yeah and it was horrendous and it's totally taking advantage but i guess if they're downplaying it and everyone's saying it's not a big deal then i guess you kind of go should this not be a big deal then why am i so upset by this but obviously it is a big deal because well to her it was happening to all of her friends they were like this is hers and we know that we have to put up with just normalized when it's your turn you have to do it yeah it's basically but there was a rather creepy note that savile actually wrote to angie so she had a copy of his autobiography as it happens and he'd signed it to her saying her real name to angie of the team no escape belongs to jimmy savile her keeper Ugh. like now knowing their weird little gang no, like, that's, that's so horrible. he said that she would say that regularly that no escape is something that he would say to her while they were having sex he would if they were in a room he'd mouth it or whisper it across the room when she was looking just no escape and she says that she genuinely felt like that was it that she didn't have an escape and they said that he, she would have sex with her alone but that even in company he would put his hands under her clothing as like, and just basically show, look, what I can do. Yeah. The whole way through this, I couldn't stop thinking about the Donald Trump saying, I can do whatever I want, grab him by the pussy. Yeah. Because that is exactly what he does, Jimmy Savile. Like, he just shows that he, he often says, you can do anything. When you're famous, you can do anything. He said that in so many interviews. And he basically does just grab people. That's he his did, thing. Yeah, he did whatever he wanted and he got away with it. That's They have exactly the same mindset. He thinks that women, you, when, you know, when you're famous, you can get away with anything. You can touch them here. You can grab a boob as you walk past in the corridor. You can stick a hand up your skirt as when you see someone sitting down. That, to me, I was thinking, shit, he's, Donald Trump said in words what Jimmy Savile was doing. Yeah. What the fuck has he been up to? He was also, like, he wasn't even nice to them. The grooming side of it, because he was a celebrity, he sort of did a, didn't really bother with any of that. He made no effort to like to make it a pleasant friendship for them. They said he would invite them to places like if he was doing a charity walk somewhere, which was one of his regular things. He yeah. would do charity walks. He would invite them to come and stay, but be like, "We've well, got to fix up your own accommodation, though," and just <laughs> pick one of the team to sleep with, and then they'd have to go and. He'd never give, they said, he'd never give them money. He would maybe drop them off at a station if they yeah. were lucky. He'd never buy them presents or treats. The only time they received anything from him was if he got given something for free and he didn't want it. So they said that basically by like 77, 78, so 10 years, this team had sort of finally drifted away. And Angie says that the only thing that really got her to go was that she started having a real relationship with someone else. And Savile tried to meddle in that relationship by saying, oh, he's cheating on you, he's cheating on you. And saying that you'll never leave me. And that's finally what got her to go. 
So a lot, most, like I said before, a lot of reports from women. There were also reports from boys too. There was a story from a young boy who was 15 who said that he went to the top of the pop studio but wasn't allowed in because he didn't look old enough. So he was going into the toilets when Savile entered, came, stood next to him and just grabbed his genitals. I mean, he's a big fan of the grabbing of the genitals. Yeah, he is. That's his thing. He is a grabber. Grabbing by the Gs. That's mm. what he does every time. And the boy says that he just shouted at him to get off and ran out and then had to stand in the February cold like for the whole rest of the filming waiting for them because he was too scared to go back in. So he was really like blatant with it as well. One girl, he she was working there and he came up to her one day and said, what's a pretty girl like you do it working here? And immediately tried to put her hand up her skirt. But she said, look at it. And she said he was struggling, but I was wearing tights, so I was saved. There was almost everything. I mean, this, you can't blame people. Like you can't victim blame at all. He is completely abusing his power. But they're all wearing skirts. Everyone, he's... You want to be wearing trousers around Savile. I mean, he needs to be told to stop. But if you were a woman around him, you would have to think to yourself, fuck, put but some it's tights almost, on. It's almost like the same theory as like, well, if you don't want to get abused, you should go around in a chastity belt. No. Yeah, I hate... I always tell that story about the rape campaign poster that said, girls, let your hair down, don't let your guard down. I was like, that is victim blaming, saying that girls can't get... It was about girls don't get drunk because you're going to get raped. Yeah. Like, you, girls should be allowed to get drunk. Boys should not be allowed to rape people. But I was thinking about it. Maybe I'm going to start wearing Spanx everywhere <laughs> because that is as good as a chastity belt. No yeah. one can get those no off. Even with there. consent, I can barely get them off. Yeah. A lot of people said that he was charming. Like, he was supposedly charismatic, but... <laughs> and that's how... Like the people that stick now by now then. Yeah. The people that stick by him say that he was charming. The people who have come forward all say creepy. he was yeah, that literally creepy, creepy, creepy. Um but one woman like he was just a massive dick. One woman who worked at the radios one studio said how in ninety six nine she was trying to get him to do a voice test, but he refused to move close to the mic. He was just sat there like, Nope. And she kept asking him, asking him and it was like, you'll have to bring it closer to me. And then when she came in the studio to bring it close to him, he grabbed her boobs. Oh, God. And she told managers, and basically they said, we'd have been surprised if he hadn't tried to touch you. Jimmy Savile, isn't it? Yeah, so... That's the argument. That's the problem. That's the argument. Well, it is Jimmy Savile. And basically, that's it. The system at the BBC was all... It, they had like pyramid structure everyone had to report to their line manager above there was no side avenues to go to to report a complaint so if something had happened to you you had to tell your boss what had happened which isn't the best way because people were concerned that they didn't really want their boss to know that someone has been sexually abusing them or has groped them it's kind of embarrassing they didn't want their boss to think, oh gosh, this person is a troublemaker, is a word used a couple of times. Mm. So then it wasn't getting passed on beyond that. A lot of people said, I struck di- who did tell the managers, not everyone did, for those reasons. Well, I think there's also the bit of the time period that it was kind of like, almost like the carry-on period, that like the, a suggestive remark wasn't like shock horror, He's he's being sexist. I think people got away with a lot more because... You know, it it was a different time when people could kind of slap their receptionist on the arse and they might not report it. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, in the report, Janet talks about it and says talks about the macho culture yeah. that was there. And she talks about how all of the technical crews were mostly men and that the promotions, they'd obviously want managers to be people that had experience working in the technical side. Therefore, those men would be the ones getting promoted. And she just rather saltily says, I doubt that such a pool necessarily provided the best management material. (laughs) She's saying at that time there was no training on diversity, sexual harassment. Like those things didn't come into play until the 90s, really. And many of the male managers were just unsympathetic. They're like, we've got to have women working with us now, especially in the 60s. We've got to have... This women still weren't in the workplace as much. So they're like, oh, we've got to accept these women now. They didn't really want to hear them. They took a complaint as being women, like moaning. It does just seem that he didn't ever stop. There was one woman's statement that... um, But so one show, he would do record requests... And he would play a recording of an interview with the person about why you want this record. So one woman wanted a request for her husband who was in hospital. And he said, right, let's record the interview in my camper van, which is the least professional yeah. place to go. I mean, we're recording this in your living room. But we're pretty upfront about the fact we are not a professional Well, I'm not outfit. forcing you to sit on a bed where you can see the toilet, no. which is what he would do. So she said that once he'd done the recording with her, he immediately said, well, do I deserve a kiss now? And then pushed her down. And she describes it that he began slobbering and licking her. He only stopped because they were interrupted by a knock on the door with a man bringing a teenage girl to come see Jimmy Savile. And he was like, yeah, okay, you can leave now. Upgrade, see you later. Yeah, like nonstop. And he talks about, in like I said, in his police interview, He one of his excuses for why he couldn't have done anything, is he says, there's no way I would assault women. They're basically assaulting me. They're all over the place. Why would I have to? Is his, his excuse is, why would I, there's no way I would be raping someone because I don't have a need to. Not because it's wrong. Because they're throwing themselves. Yeah, not, not that I would never rape someone, it's wrong. Just I'd never rape someone because they, were, they want to have sex with me. And they weren't throwing themselves at him, but they were around. Another standout case was an account from a 10-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl, one of the worst ones, which was on top of the pops in 1979. And this one's been in the news because he just covered... It was a Christmas special. Wizard and so on were the ones of the day. And he'd done the show wearing a womble suit, went back into his dressing room, didn't even change out of it, and abused both of them. This is how people get phobias. Yes. I mean, John Wayne Gacy didn't take it quite that, to that level of a full furry suit, <laughs> but it happens. There was another account where he did a show called Speakeasy, which was like a topical discussion show where you'd have an audience of teenagers and be like, here's the topic, let's talk about it. I mean, some of the topics were tenuous, like they were supposed to be getting really heated debates and discussion. The topic of this particular show was blindness. Discuss. <laughs> I don't really know. Some people are blind, yes. <laughs> they can't see very well. I've met a blind person and they couldn't see a thing. Some of my best friends are blind. <laughs> I don't really know what the debate would be about with blind people. <laughs> but there was a visually impaired girl in the audience to discuss the blindness thing. And she was chosen to come and be interviewed by him. Apparently, so when he greeted her, he immediately kissed her and put his tongue in her throat. That is something that recurs a lot of times that he would 
go to kiss someone as a greeting, but tongue round. Tongue down throat is repeated a lot. So there were employees around. Her teacher had to be present there. So people watched him kiss her like this. So it's obvious that he didn't feel worried at all. He didn't give a shit. And other people were like, this is common. And the girl says that she didn't complain about it because she knew there were people around. They probably warned her when he probably will try and molest you. Just bite you, just grit your teeth. It's Jimmy Savile, isn't it? She said that there were people watching, so if there was a problem, they would have said, this must have been normal. Yeah. And like you were saying before, like young, vulnerable people, if no, if the adults around aren't speaking up, they're going to think, obviously yeah, this, this is, is life then. I think it's just this accepted thing of like, yeah, he's a bit like that. Yeah, he is a bit of a creep, but, you know, it's just what he's like. No harm in it. Yeah. There is harm in it. If someone being a creep in front of people, God knows what they're doing without people there. Um, so, like I say, most of the abuses took place and that was one of the most widespread ones at the BBC. I mean, he was an opportunist, is what comes through. Like, if he thought he could get away with something and he saw someone who was alone, he would have a go at them. Like, he would try. Um, But there were particular places that he visited regularly where abuse occurred. One of these was Duncroft School, which was an approved school for girls. It was also sometimes called a children's home. It was also known as a school for emotionally disturbed girls. And some of them were sent there court-ordered for various things. Some of them it was things like they'd been committing crimes. Some had been in foster care and sent. Some of them had, had suicide attempts, which at the time, back in the 60s, 70s, they were like, quick, send her away. Like, I mean, they're basically very vulnerable young women without any real protection around them. Yeah, and they're not even... They're now in this like boarding school situation, so they're not even having real mater- like paternal care. No. They're already emotionally vulnerable, come from a range of different situations, and they're in this situation together. Savile was a regular visitor at this school. Partly he would come... He was a massive celebrity. He's creepy looking. If you... When you see a picture of him, I, you can't understand... I can't understand how he was so popular. I mean, he looks but, like John Straffin that I covered recently the mentally disturbed like young weird man who'd gone around strangling girls they look pretty similar him and Savile to be honest blonde thin a bit gormless I mean he looked like he was 70 his whole life he was never he wasn't he wasn't even attractive when he was young he always looked like an old man um, but he was one of the biggest celebrities of the time. So him going to visit a school was like a morale boost. Like, he's yeah. here. And he would bring presents, which were basically boxes and boxes and boxes of cigarettes. <laughs> I mean, that's just the time. Smoke up, kiddies! Again, as a charitable donor, he also had his own room at the school. This was a girls' school, all female staff. But Jimmy Savile's got a bedroom on the top floor. <laughs> I mean, what are the... I don't... This happened... Like you said, he had a bedroom at Broadmoor. He he says himself, I never sleep more than two nights in the same place. He's very transient, moving around. But why? Why? Why does anyone be like, oh, if you want to come and visit us, you can also sleep here? I don't know the reasoning why they gave him a bedroom there. But so he would arrive with his presence and he would pick out girls to hang out with him or maybe choose a really lucky girl to come on a ride with him in his Rolls Royce. In the Savile, the second Savile documentary by Louis Theroux, he interviews a former pupil of the school who would talk about how 
if they were chosen, like she was one time, he would drive out into the country somewhere, park up, and then he would demand that they perform sex acts on him. The girls, some of them did report things at the time, but because of the situation, the school they were in, the reasons why they were there, they were just thought to be unreliable witnesses. They were thought that you were already mentally disturbed. Mm. No. The school is was shut down eventually, but the, basically some of the girls were saying things, but they just didn't trust them. But I know, I think I've seen the same documentary, and I know that a lot of the girls said to each other, like they, they just talked openly about the fact that this was happening, and they were like, oh, it might be your time next time, and they just it was just a topic of conversation. And some of them hated being at the home so much that actually it was at least it was a day out for them even though they had to go through this traumatic experience a lot of them said oh it was kind of worth it because then you know i got a lovely day riding around in a car for the rest of the time it's almost like a necessary evil the janet smith report does mention that groups of duncroft girls would be chosen and then bussed to recording studios so they could be in the audience for a treat they could be in the audience for top of the pops or for clunk click and though a teacher would go with them as part of the bus that if the girls went back to the dressing room the teacher never came again it's that safe and sound like the the policies just weren't in place they were like yeah, of course, you can go. They just assumed he's a trusted, reliable person. Yeah, like a charitable person. He's doing a lovely thing. Yeah, he donates to our school and he wants to take you into his dressing room alone. I'm not going to come. But you don't know if maybe the first time they went to go with him and then he just made them feel so uncomfortable and awkward about the fact, oh, don't trust me then. Like You don't know what he said to make them think... And like he's quite a big celebrity you would be like oh I've offended him he thinks I don't trust him now and I say the Duncroft girls were the most vocal and it was because of a spate of reports made by former pupils that actually led to the investigation by Surrey Police yeah. in 2009 well it's, sorry it started in 2007 they interviewed him in 2009 for it this one of the only cases where this came out while he was alive the police, though, I mean, it just shows again how he had this special treatment. He wasn't arrested. He was interviewed at his bedroom in the Stoke Mandeville Hospital. They came to him. They, that's where this interview took place, this really formal place in his bedroom at a hospital where we now know he abused people there too. Things they said to him now seem... His answers were weird, <laughs> but a little bit revealing. He basically just would go on and on and on and on until they'd sort of forgotten what they were asking him. So they were asking him, like, oh, during this time when it's happening in the 70s, were you on TV then? And that's when he said that what when you work at Top of the Pops, what you don't do is assault women. They assault you. That's for sure. And you don't have to because you've got plenty of girls about. So dealing with something like this is out of the question. That's what I said. Obviously, I'm not an abuser because... You can't possibly ask me that. I mean, if Louis Theroux is anything to go by, he would be an absolute bugger to try and interview because it would just be endless roundabouts of him rambling on. Yeah. And trying to make himself look good and trying to twist what they were saying. They then, they asked him a bit later, they said, "Um, did you know how old most of the girls were? And he said, they were unbelievable as a team, which I thought was a weird choice of words. And links back to when he called his other harem of girls the London team. So talking about the Duncroft girls, he said they were unbelievable as a team. You didn't bother whether they were 16, what the hell they were, because they all seemed like adults and they all acted like adults. So he just shoved the dick in them So he's he's literally saying, you didn't bother if they were 16 or not. So he didn't really care. 
he was just saying they were acting like adults, they should be treated like them. So he, I can't believe they didn't really follow up on that too much with the next question. But what are you saying then if you're treating them like adults, you think they're adults? Um, it's like if a girl's wearing makeup, it's justifying, well, she wants to look sexy, therefore I can do whatever I want to her. It doesn't work like that. Part, I mean, you should see yeah. some of the year nines that I teach. They look older than I do. But that doesn't justify treating them as if they are fully formed adults. They're, they're not. They're just young kids who have seen a lot of stuff in music videos and want to look cool. Yeah. Part of the reason why some people think this attitude was around prevalent at the time is that in 1970, the age of majority had been lowered from 21 to 18. So there was discussion at the time about whether they should also lower the age of sexual consent. So around the 70s, there was open discussion about whether 16 was really a problem or not. And that's where they feel that many people at the time just ignored the age of consent because they felt like if you can lower an age, then what does it really matter? Yeah, but it's different with like a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old having sex and like a 40-year-old and a 15-year-old. That's basically what people have said, that when they were discussing it, they were talking about, well, maybe a 15-year-old with their teenage boyfriend, but age gaps were not considered okay. No. A woman called Leslie Taylor who worked at the BBC, she'd said that she'd been had a discussion with Savile in the cafeteria when he talked about his view on the age of consent and he openly said that he thought it should be lowered to either 12 or 14. <laughs> Let's just let that settle. Like, he yeah. openly said 12. to someone, I think girls should be able to have sex at 12. No. I honestly don't think he cared. He's often described as being emotionless. He, he, he describes himself as being emotionless. Yeah, I didn't think he considered i think there's a bit of psychopathy in that he didn't consider other people's feelings like the fact that he didn't have relationships he didn't want to hear other people's feelings he didn't no he didn't i think he just saw that it was objects he didn't consider that they were sentient yeah even really he was so bizarre there was there's one section of this police interview that sort of goes off the rails in quite i found quite a comical way it's almost like on the American office, when... My, sorry for anyone who did it, but... In the American office, um, Michael Scott is being deposed. And so they're recording everything he says. And at one point, he does a, that's what she said joke. And they're like, what did she say? And they have this huge, <laughs> long discussion about who'd said what that goes over the top. And there's one part in this interview where they have to change the tapes... And the police say, right, we just need to repeat the caution. Just remind. He's like, well, I reject the caution. And like, yeah, well, we just kind of have to say that we have to say it anyway. He's like, yeah, well, it doesn't matter because I just reject it. I'm not doing it. It's like, well, we just need to let you know this is not a police caution. We're not giving you a warning. We're just reading this, the caution that you can say anything. Well, and he just keeps, and it goes round and rounds because there's obviously an official caution and they're just reading that you have the right to remain silent but he's being so irritating that like we have to say this and record it on the tape can we get it done yeah, can you just shut up I, well, I reject it <laughs> I reject you being a human being he then talks in this interview too he talks about how people have always accused him of things and he finds it funny and he's not really bothered he says that people write me letters all the time trying to blackmail me and he says that I have lots of... He says that he has friends in the Leeds police force that he'd pass on weirdo letters, he called them. And so I said, I'll pass them on to my friends in the police office, at, at, in the police force, sort of saying like, 
I'm not doing it because anything that happens, I pass it on. But then it, I think it's a story that he's making up because then they say, well, what are the names of these police officers? And he's like, oh, I don't know the names. I only know the nicknames. And then they said, so things have been investigated then. He's like, well, no, I don't pass them on for them to investigate. I just give them to them and they pass them around the office and have a laugh at them. <laughs> and they're like, oh, so you don't take it seriously then if anyone accuses you? And he's like, well, obviously I give them then to keep them safe in case something happens to me. And he just is just rambling, like... So, because they're taking it seriously, like, so they've been a, so you have like people threatening you. Do you want us to do something about it? He's like, well, no. So he's just bullshit. But that's why he's so infuriating in every interview that he does because he just tries to lead it and he kind of he tries to make flippant remarks and he just expects everyone in response to be like, oh yes, you're so brilliant, or just to take him on face word. And if people are just like, no, but tell me more about that. He's like, no, 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 you don't do that. Yeah, you don't let them. Just agree to me. Just laugh at what I'm saying. He does just shut them down with Ramble. I mean, he was being accused of really serious things and the time they spent talking about it was hardly any. There were three accusations that were brought in for this interview. One was that he was accused of sticking his tongue down the throat of a member of Duncroft Girls Choir while they were singing at Stoke Manville Hospital. God, Another one... You know to sing with someone's tongue down your throat. I think it was, <laughs> after, <laughs> I think it was afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> while it was in the middle of a performance another one was the one I mentioned where he'd forced a girl to give him a blowjob in the car and then the final one was that he'd found a girl alone in the TV room and she was sitting with a blanket and he put his hand up and rubbed her genitals but it's just disregarded because he talks for so long they can hardly go into detail Yeah. so I mentioned a few times this Stoke Mandeville Hospital it was um, a spinal well it is spinal injury hospital in Stoke Mandeville and so between 1969 and 1992 Savile abused 60 people in connection with that hospital ranging in age from 8 to 40. Oh my god. He abused patient staff and visitors so it was opportunistic it wasn't like he's he's not targeting a specific group it's just anyone any age anyone in particular if you're around and I think I can get away with it yeah is what he's doing. But you mentioned earlier about his obsession with death. It said that he did. He started work as a voluntary porter, being like, oh, if a celebrity's in there, it'll boost morale. But basically, they say that he loved taking bodies to the mortuary. And that was basically his main job there. To stick his dick in them. I hope not. I mean, he's sticking his dick in everything else. This is true. I, but I think that shows that they knew he was creepy. Like, if you've got one of the biggest celebrities volunteering as a porter, you'd think you'd want him, you know, wheeling the patients, having his face about. They were like, no, send him down the mortuary. I'd probably give my body up for paedophilic... Ten- like, I'd rather they abuse a dead body than they abuse a live one. Sorry, I was just looking at you so like, oh, you can't be a paedophile. I'm like, those days are gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not going to want you. <laughs> no. He later, though, was appointed to a senior role in the hospital um he actually became one of like the on the board with the other managers it started because they needed to fundraise for a new building and this is one of his great life successes before all the scandal came out this is one of the things that he was most widely um, respected for is that he did loads of fundraising he raised something like 11 million for this hospital and oversaw the building of it. Charles and Diana came to the opening and you, there's a 
you can see a video of them stood. And he's, like I say, he's still dressed in a tracksuit. Yeah. Still coarse, making jokes about... And Diana's just there, not smiling. Just like, just doing a little, like, not interested. But it showed that he had friends. And the staff, even to this day, the staff members that really remember him fondly, and were like, I can't... They can't equate it to what they hear now but again it's because there's opportunity but everyone still says even the ones that stick by him like oh well that was Jim like they still admit to little things yeah that they brushed off things like if you would enter a room and there was a woman there grab her on the breast kiss them on like that just sort of I think that's what was so shocking about it it was like everybody knew everyone knew no one said anything and then when he died it's always like yeah we all knew yeah, in the Stoke Mandeville report, their their independent report, they say that the managers knew he had a reputation as a sex pest and they would just tell people to stay away from him. One 12-year-old girl reported a rape, but the, was told by a nurse, allegedly, was told by a nurse, oh, be quiet because we'll get in trouble if we say things about Jimmy. They, a lot of nurses said in this report said that people felt like he had the power to fire them that because he was so even that such big connection with the hospital they felt like that if they said anything he had the power to just kick them out of the hospital and it's also said that there were really blurred lines generally mm. in that hospital that there was a lot of cases of patients and staff getting having starting relationships and getting married and there's one time where because it's a spinal unit a lot of people there are for long periods of time yeah. there's one girl who'd been there for eight months and he took her out for dinner while she was a patient and then obviously had to take her back to the hospital which is just inappropriate like you can't yeah. imagine now like someone visiting a hospital and being like well I'm just going to take you the, this patient on a date yeah. and bring her back um really bizarre Broadmoor is the one that surprised me yeah fans of the podcast will know by now that criminally insane at one point is what it's called the hospital for the criminally insane I mean he should have been a a patient there he clearly was a psychopath they should have locked his door and thrown away the key and left him in Broadmoor because and I think that's that's even worse it's almost like rubbing it in the face that he's just wandering in and out of Broadmoor when he should be a resident also, really annoyed that all these people that we've covered there, why didn't Graham Young make this fucker a cup of tea? Or Robert Morsley, who killed someone in Broadmoor, like the cannibal. Like, why couldn't he have been involved? Uh, because as well, so you mentioned he had a bedroom there. They also, he had his own set of keys. So he had complete unrestricted access to the wards, to the patient's bedrooms, to any day rooms there. He could go in and out as he pleased of anywhere in that hospital that's a very strange policy to be given celebrities keys to convicted murderers yep his keys weren't taken off him until 2009 up until 2009 so from 1968 till 2009 he still had a set of keys even after policies were starting to put that's how late it was before people started to what was the justification for him being there because i know with the children's homes it's like oh, he's really kind visiting them, the residents. People in Broadmoor, I mean, I guess they'd be found so, criminally insane so that it's not like, oh, these are murderers that... It's murderers who couldn't help it, but... Yeah. So the reason he went in, so it said that it was... Again, it was to boost morale. He had support by doctors, in particular uh, Dr. McGrath, who'd sort of invited him and set him up with the keys and the room and things like that. So they felt that it was a good thing. He also said that he was trying to raise the profile of Broadmoor and change people's perception about mental health. 
But the, their individual, their independent report at Broadmoor says that the fundraising for there was quite trivial and that there's no evidence that he actually really made a difference to either public perception of Broadmoor or really their financial situation. So unlike Stoke Mandeville, where he really, he did good work and made a difference, at Broadmoor it seemed like he wasn't really trying. He was using it as a B&B. So they also said that he would use his accommodation there and bring women back to it. So not only That's was a bad idea. So not only was he roaming around this secure hospital, he was having guests come to his bedroom there, and it said he would entertain regularly entertain women, and it said that nothing in the report said that at the time nothing was done to question his suitability to access the hospital. How about the fact that he's bringing people to have sex in the hospital? <laughs> that would for me be like he's not really a suitable candidate to be here. The fact that he's not a doctor or a therapist or been incarcerated there, surely those are the criteria for needing access to Broadmoor. Not just some guy who wants to come in. Yeah. And at the time as well, they definitely had... I mean, it's different now, but at the time they had a very custodial approach. They called them inmates, not patients. They were treated harshly. There was a bit of a culture of you know, lack of respect and lack of humanity towards the inmates from the staff. The staff were actually not nurses. They were part of the prison officers unit. So they were, it was very much more like a prison at then. So there was a definite (laughs) culture where they would, they were hostile towards anyone who reported incidents because there were incidents all the time, not just from Savile. But there were 10 allegations of abuse at Broadmoor, the report that they've done accepts that six of them happened, but these were all repeat assaults. So six individual people that, but obviously they're inmates or patients at this hospital, they live there. So those six were repeatedly assaulted. The routine was that on the women's ward, they would all have to strip completely naked in the ward before they would go sent off to have a bath in the evening. And Savile always turned up at that time. Bingo. No. He said that he would watch them regularly looking through the doorways at the patients when they got undressed and while they were bathing. And staff members said that he would make comments about them, but that staff would too. I mean, this was a place where he fit right in back then. Yeah. They didn't think his behaviour was weird because they were treating the patients just as badly, They were all talking about Maureen's saggy tits anyway. In 1988, though, Cliff Graham, who was one of the directors of Broadmoor, gave Jimmy Savile a direct managerial role in the hospital. Totally unqualified. I mean, he didn't really... It said that he didn't actually do much, really, apart from throw his weight around and just say, I can get stuff done. I'm the vagina inspector. I can get rid of you. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just checking that the undressing is still going down. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just... I'm literally so exhausted from this man. There were... I mean, there's hundreds of others. There's local authorities across the country have had to do their individual reports. Leeds General Hospital, also a lot of abuse took place there. If you want to read them... All of these reports are available on the government websites. You can read into them if you like. I'm not going to go into any more detail of them. I think I think we've covered enough. I think we've certified this guy was an absolute fucking nightmare. Yeah. And more worrying that... I mean, just so grateful that society has changed. It hasn't gone all the way to where it should be yet. But the fact that although he was awful he was allowed to do what he did by not one person. There's no, you can't really start pointing fingers and laying blame at particular people, but there are hosts of people that were involved in enabling this to happen. In the general sexist culture, 
in the culture of if you complain, it looks bad for you. Victim yeah. blaming was massive. It's thought lot, some women who reported things were told, if you say this, you're going to look bad. Yeah. Because it was shameful. I mean, the rule is really that celebrities, just because they're famous, doesn't make them any better than anyone else. And actually they should be held to the same account. Yeah. And that's another thing that Janet Smith says. She says that one of the other reasons is this vip culture in that as a celebrity at the bbc in particular the talent would just treat with kid gloves because there was that competition at the time itv was coming around coming on the bbc one you wanted to hold on to your people you didn't want them to go anywhere and it was felt like you would do anything to keep them i think yeah i think what's so upsetting about it is that he died without anyone challenging him knowing like he never had any punishment for this he was never thrown in jail it didn't come to light and he was discredited like he lived a life where he just got away with it the entire time and he didn't give a shit he fucking knew it because do you know what was written on his head his gravestone what the big quote along the bottom of his gravestone was it was good while it lasted (sighs) which obviously is now destroyed and gone he's literally just got nothing to mark his grave it's good there because obviously people just would come and be like fuck you so a little i think it's a little break from our norm because it wasn't exactly true crime but it is or funny (laughs) (laughs) it is true crime there were so many crimes did you listen to how many crimes i told you about i guess in the sense that it's crimes that were true yes I'm getting more just hysteria at this point because for every crime I've told or written about, I had to read about 50 other crimes that he did. Like, it's... I can't impress upon you the scale of the abuse without having a five-hour-long podcast. But I think also, after this, there were so many inquiries about other people as well, weren't there? Like, it was like every week. And no one's safe. I mean, thank goodness... David Attenborough's name's never been tied through the mud because I love him. And if and him or Stephen Fry, that's it for me. Like Rolf Harris, uh, I'm not. I'm not that surprised. Really? But he looked after the animals. Two little boys and two little toys. A wooden horse. Yeah. What about it? Yes. Yeah, Gaily, they played <laughs> together. Um, stop being creepy, men. Can you all just stop being creepy? It's not our fault if you're weird. Just all like. Stop being weird. We shouldn't have to do anything to protect ourselves. You should all stop being creepy. I think being creepy also should be grounds for an investigation. Yeah. I mean, that is the one time where... I mean, Louis, in his documentaries, he is quite subtle. He does ask questions, but I think some people accused him of maybe not going as far as he should. But, I I mean, he didn't know. He didn't know at the time. Part of the reason he did his second documentary because he was trying to go through and see how come I didn't know. But there is one bit where he's with Jimmy Savile sat in a canteen and he 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 does does actually bring up the allegations and then Jimmy rambles and rambles and rambles and then Louis just goes, well, there's no smoke without fire. And I was like, good on you! Like, because he sort of, he left it there, but he was like basically saying, well, it's probably an investigation. But yeah, at that time, there was no investigation. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just rambling now, but I'm doing a Jimmy Savile. So please um, continue to tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe us. That is a really good way of getting our name out there. Follow us on social media at Slaughter the Pod on Twitter. Uh, find us on Facebook. Join the Facebook group. Hopefully, there'll be a few discussions about Savile and what people know or don't know about him. Did he fix it for you? 
No, he didn't fix it for anyone. Listening to Slaughter doesn't make you a psycho, but wearing really flammable shell suits and smoking at the same time definitely does. 